This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk. Welcome to the Polar Institute to discuss the tropics, which is very suitable. So if you're feeling a bit warm, you can always arm yourself with that aside. What I'm going to say a little bit now is what I mean by education system and what I mean by the, the East. A little bit, I'm going to set out the case to answer, which is that we do have lessons to learn from these countries. And then I'm going to set out some answers to that case, including rejecting the case, rejecting the evidence, and putting counter-arguments. Then I'm going to say what my approach is, which is not unique to me, and it's very much in support of some of the things you'll have read by Tim, for example. And it is that we can learn intelligent lessons, we can learn intelligent lessons from other systems, but largely to hold up a mirror to our own. And lastly, I'm going to suggest some positive messages from some of the countries I'm talking about and also some challenges to ourselves from what they do. So if there's something I say that's completely unintelligible, just shout out. Otherwise, I'm hoping this will take about 30 minutes, and there'll be a chance for some questions and discussion. So that's it. So bashing on, I'm going to concentrate on school systems, but one of the many um, misgivings about this whole enterprise is that often people take school systems in isolation from other parts of education, for example, from nursery education or um, HE or further education, and that's wrong. But I'm going to talk mainly about school systems. And when I say our, I mean the UK. I think most of the examples that we will have to mind will probably be about England, but there is, in fact, a very live debate about comparisons between curricula and assessments in, in Wales and Scotland with some parts of the regions that I'm going to talk about. And the East... I'm going to talk about mainly Southeast Asia and East Asia. I'm not talking about Eastern, what was Eastern Europe or um, the old Soviet Republic, which is a completely different set of issues, but very interesting ones. In the handout, the very last book called What the West Can Learn from the East, Asian Perspectives, in fact has a big chunk there about Russia, and that's really very interesting, but for another day, not today. So that's broadly what I'm talking about. Um, uh, there's me on the little dot in Singapore talking about a huge part of the world and the questions about what lessons we can learn from there. And it's certainly a very mixed picture. Economically, that map covers a complete multitude of stories. You've got the whole distinctive history of Japan, its development right through the 19th century and the 20th century. You've got the four so-called tiger economies that are so linked to educational developments, Taiwan, Hong Kong, um, Singapore and what's the other one, South Korea and then you've got the ones they call the sleeping tigers which are the ones where the economic development over the last 18 months has been phenomenal and nobody quite knows where they're going to go, that's Vietnam and Indonesia, Indonesia the fourth most populated country in the world, huge, huge potential there the unknowns, particularly Burma because we just don't know what's going to happen there and there's the whole world phenomenon of China. So there's a lot of mix. And to generalise about Asia is like generalising about Europe or about America or something. It just doesn't work. Educationally, you've got enormous differences as well. And that's when you come to these international comparative tables. <coughs> In the same map that I showed you, you have some countries that are hugely high achievers. And that's why we're here today. And you've got some that are the football combination, if that, really are low achievers and are struggling, some of which have been asking us for help with their struggles. And just to go back to the map a bit, where I've put the arrows there is these are the 
classic high achievers. I've not included Japan, but you've got to remember it's got a big honourable history as well. But these are the ones you'd expect. There's um, a South Korea, Shanghai, um, Hong Kong, Singapore. These, and, but they're right cheek by jowl with countries that have got enormous challenges. David and I were just talking about the Philippines before we came. There it is. Enormous problems there. Um, Malaysia um, has... He had a very unfavourable PISA report very recently. Um, Indonesia, big, big problems. Vietnam, big issues of quality. So there's a big mixture. So there you've got the high achievers, the low achievers, and the middle ones. And they're all cheek by jowl with each other. So there's something funny going on there. So the case to answer, which I will be putting next week and which I want to debate today, is a simple one. It is that we must learn from these countries because they're doing so well. And this is where you come to the evidence from the international surveys of various kinds. And if you look at the handout, I'm not going to go into this in detail, but many of you will be familiar with the PISA and the TIMS and the PEARLS surveys um, done by, um, on the one occasion by OECD and the other by the IEA. And if you look at the page two, which is the inside cover of this, which is PISA 2009, and this is done by the OECD, and they have three different age groups, but this is the secondary school achievers. And again, putting things together horrendously. If you just look at the top, Shanghai came into the hit parade at number one. It had never taken place, taken part in PISA before. Suddenly, it came in number one. And look at the ones that are at the top of the list. Korea, there's Finland, which we're not going to talk about, which is a story in itself. Hong Kong, Singapore. And then you keep looking for the others. And then if you look on page two, about halfway down, you've found the United States. And then you go on to page three, 26, you've got the United Kingdom. And then some of the Southeast Asian ones come in much later than that. Page four, number 50, Thailand. Going right on, you've got Indonesia at 57. Um, and you've got some that don't take part at all. It's a very, very mixed picture. Now, when the 2009 PISA came out, it caused an absolute storm, particularly in the United States, who were totally gobsmacked. There's a famous book by um, Sam Friedman called that used to be us, which was published in the United States. And it wasn't only about education, but it was about, you know, what earth's going on? These tiger economies are suddenly flourishing in education. We used to be the top nation. We've got to learn from them because otherwise they'll take over from us and run the world is basically what the argument is. And that is the case to answer. And later on in this handout, I've re reproduced for those with reading glasses, um, page 7 and 8, a two bits of the TIMS survey, and page seven is maths, um, and you'll see that England's a bit higher up there, but look who's at the top. There's no Shanghai in TIMS. Uh, this is 2007. There's the old favourite subjects again. And then the next one, science, same story. So the case to answer is they're doing really well. They're doing better than us. It used to be us that were at the top, if you pardon my grammar, of all of this. We've got to learn from them, and that's the case. McKinsey, back it up, in a um, <clears throat> couple of studies on the great and good um, and excellent education systems. They classify education systems uh, among 22 that they look at. They classify them into fair, good, great, excellent. Excellent seems to be better than great for some reason with McKinsey. And most of the ones I've mentioned are in great and we are in good. So... How are we going to get from good to great is the question. The answer, by learning from them. So that's the case to answer. 
We must be able to learn from them because they're doing better than us. Now, the first answer to that case, the counsel for the defence comes in now and says, just a minute, I'm going to criticise your evidence. It's nothing like criticising the evidence for the case. That's often done by technical criticisms of these tests, which I'm not going to go into detail, but there's people here who know a lot about that. Um, Paul Newton gave a wonderful phrase when he was criticising some of the weight put on these. He called it Pisa envy, which I think is a wonderful phrase which you can take <laughs> away. Um, don't get carried away by Pisa envy. There's lots of issues about comparing unlikes with unlikes, and there's issues about methodology and also about comparisons between surveys with one and the other, which are used politically. Say, when Labour were in, we were you know, 92nd, and now we're third or something. So there's a lot of politics about that. And all I would say in summary is that I think we've got to be careful not to let us let ourselves off the hook at considering some of these questions by just technical criticism of the tests. There are a couple of very good articles, particularly the long paper by John Jerram of the London Institute in my list, which go over some of these criticisms. And I think to summarise heroically, the most difficult thing is comparing one survey with another, because in PISA, for example, they slightly alter the tests each time. And as you'll have learnt, if you learnt assessment, if you want to measure change, you don't change the measure, and they are changing it a wee bit. So there's issues there. But I think there is largely, there's a bit of a cop-out in all of that. The other is playing politics with the outcomes. There was a debate in the House of Lords which took three hours, which consisted of asking that question. All the Labour Party said, look at Tim's, we're number six, or we're number seven, we're doing really well. And all the Conservatives said, look at Pisa, we're doing, we're 26, it's absolutely dreadful. That's because of the Labour government screwed up. And much <coughs> unproductive discussion took place. Now, the point there is there's a very good study of this by the NFER, who handle our end of these, of these surveys. And leaving aside a lot of important detail... The main difference between the two surveys is that a lot more countries were considered in PISA, including high-achieving ones. Which, and the important thing is not really what number you are in the hit parade, as I've put it, but the marks, the scores. Um, and so you can't just allow this to be a totally political wrangle. The other next answer is that we are the only ones that do the test properly. The other countries all cheat. Um, and they cheat by putting their best students in for the, the so-called random samples, we're told. And you hear people who've met people in conferences who were said, oh, we are the Korean government bit that chooses the random sample and all this sort of story. You've all have heard those. Um, and the other reason they're supposed to cheat is because they practice for the tests. Shock, horror. Um, and again, summarising, what I would say about this is there's usually an iota of cultural truth in some of those, but on the whole, they're a cop-out too. That's my own view, is that these are a cop-out. And the bit about practising, really, you know, um, those of you who are as old as me and know their Flanders and Swan will know about the English, the English, the English are best. I wouldn't give tuppence for all of the rest. And there's a verse in that, no matter what country, they're always the same. They've, never, they've simply no notion of playing the game they criticise umpires, they cheer when they've won and practice beforehand, which spoils all the fun. <laughs> and there is a sense of English amateurism about all of this. And, oh, we, nobody cheats, empty cheats except us. And I would take all that with a healthy lot of scepticism, although there are different traditions about what it means to select a sample for these, and there's a little bit of history there in some of the Chinese countries. And probably the most important criticism is not these ones, it is this one. It is that the tests, according to this Council for the Defence, don't test the things that really matter. It isn't how good we are at doing sums. Our kids are doing sums or reading or doing science tests that 
OECD test. It's about these things. It's about 21st century skills. It's about creativity, critical thinking, innovation, collaboration. It's about what the, some Americans call wisdom skills, which are quite difficult to measure but are good predictors for future success. Empathy, spirituality, respect, understanding... And also another kind of measure is by social measures, such as social justice, equality, human rights as respected in education. Now, again, there's a big debate, and I expect to have that very much with my friend from the IBM next week. And I'm going to say something a bit more about culture in a minute. But what I would say at this stage, as the prosecutor to that counsel for the defence, is this. Why are these alternatives... There's an enormous debate about critical thinking, creative skills, and these are clear strengths. But why are the alternatives to being able to do sums and being able to read? And most of us just think from a common sense point of view, it makes, it's very counterintuitive to think they are alternatives. It, there may be a question of emphasis and balance between, but that's much more subtle. But the idea that you're either good at sums or you're good at critical thinking seems implausible from the start, and it's certainly not a reason, in my view, for throwing out all this evidence from the start. So I'm not very impressed by counsel for the defence saying that one. The other thing is he might, or she, might also criticise McKinsey's methodology in looking at the different school systems. And again, summarising, I would suggest to you there is something in some of the points made there, particularly about the fact that some of the McKinsey inquiries seemed to take on trust the stories they were given by governments about interventions they'd made and didn't always test them against the perceptions by not only by successful schools in the countries, but by unsuccessful schools in the countries. For example, about teacher autonomy. How much teacher autonomy is there really concerned with what the government told McKinsey? So there's a bit of, of, of scepticism there. So I'm, I'm not very impressed by that lot, but I am saying that we do need to be cautious about drawing conclusions. Firstly, we need to be very cautious about the relationship between education and economic prosperity. Because one point of view, which people often put, going back to my maps, remember the maps with the bits with the arrows on them, is, well, it's simple. There's no reason to have this meeting at all. It's quite straightforward. The ones that had arrows are the prosperous nations, and the ones that didn't, like Indonesia and the Philippines, are not prosperous. So that's it. That's quite straightforward. Go home. Well, it's not as easy as that. This is probably not readable. I think that's probably right. But what it is, a very clever graph by the AOECD, plotting maths at secondary school against GDP per capita. And what they're doing is doing a trend line there, which you don't need to see all the detail, about where you would expect them to be in maths compared to the GDP per capita. And so if you're on the trend line, you're roughly where you would expect to be in England and the USA and Malta and Ontario are all on the trend line. However, it isn't as easy as that because there's a group who are well above the trend line who are doing better than you would have expected from GDP. And guess who they are? I can read the small writing. Chinese Taipei, Republic of Korea, Singapore, Japan, Hong Kong. So they're doing better than you would expect just from their economic performance. Um, And so it's not as easy as that. And it's certainly not an explanatory function. Um, The other thing to say, the causality doesn't work the other way either, that education in itself is not a silver bullet for economic prosperity. And again, people in this room can give you examples of the research on that. But there are very good examples of the same educational interventions in a similar context not having the effect because of other factors, like Sri Lanka is a very big example where the fact there was a civil war didn't help matters very much. And um, you cannot simply put simple causal lines between one intervention and another. 
The other thing, however, we've got to be very cautious about is cause and effect assumptions generally. And that is assuming, for example, that these achievements of these young people that you see here um, are the result of the school system. They might not be. They might be the result of something much, much deeper than that. So, for example, about their family experiences or about tutoring that they get outside the school system or other things that happen. And one of the quite telling factors in that is research done in the United States about Asian-American children who attend the same schools as Caucasian children. And sometimes there are differences in outcome which are not attributable to the school experience they have because they have the same experience but different outcomes. So maybe that's something to do with families or something or something else. So there's a bit of conclusion of caution required there about cause and effect. And also the issue about not comparing like with like. Um, and that's familiar. Remember last year I had a little graph of the surface area of Singapore, Hong Kong, and the Isle of Skye, which was twice and a bit the size of Singapore. You know, you're talking about small city-states in one hand and huge countries in another, and you can't necessarily um, conclude one thing from another because, for example, the, the more direct opposite number might be a city education authority rather than a country one or whatever. So there's issues there that mean proper and sensible caution about drawing lessons. More reasons for caution, and I'm going to skip through some of those. One, because Tim's here and has written very well on this, is the need to take into account what he calls control factors, which are a whole range of things which set um, particular issues in context to do with school systems, accountability, <coughs> assessment systems, governance, political structures, um, the relation to the roles of teaching profession. There's lots and lots of them. Um, and if you take something out of the context of its control factors and think that and you apply it in separate control factors, you could get quite different outcomes. And that's set out clearly in Tim's paper. And that's certainly something that's a very important lesson for us all to learn. Another one is time factors. Again, this is rather obvious. But if the students who did terribly well in these tests might have done well because of something they did in primary that's been changed since they did that. So if you then turn up tomorrow and look at their primary schools, they might not be doing the same things. So it's an obvious point, but you've got to remember that. The other thing is you must remember the links between schools and other parts of education, let alone other parts of society. And also the danger of focusing on what can be most easily copied from the top, especially if you're a government or you're trying to advise ministers on what you can do that will make a difference within the lifetime of a government, what can the government effect? Oh, well, we can do something. We can make rules about the curriculum, or we can do something. Now, there's a danger to focus on what can be done from the top. Uh, McKinsey says things about the fact that national and state governments can make a difference. But be careful of just jumping to those because they're the easiest ones to deal with. Then there's the red herrings. Um, I don't know whether it's counsel for the prosecution or the defence. It's probably the, the judge's assistant that brings in the red herrings. First one is, well, it's again, it's quite easy. It's about spending money. If our government spent the money that Singapore and all the rest of them do on education, you've solved it. Well, you haven't. Um, I drew up that little graph, and it's, again, it, the point is that the, our high achievers are by no means the highest public spenders on education per head. With this, the United States figures, if you add private expenditure, it goes up even more. It's not about how much you spend. It's about how you, what you do with it, really. And it's pretty clear that that's a red herring. The other one is about teachers' pay. And I, haven't, I was going to include a, a diagram of stuff from the OECD about that in your handout, but I didn't because quite a lot of the countries I'm interested in are missed out from it. But summarising, the story is that 
these, apart from Korea, where there's a different story, and it is, for its, at the end of its pay scales, a high payer, the others are not particularly high payers. And they don't pay the teachers remarkably more. They're around about in the middle of the range of payers. A lot of them do have longer career spines for teachers than we do. A lot of them do. But they're not the high payers. So both just spending more government money and paying teachers are taken out of context red herring. Now, the next answer, Council for the Defence has come back again saying, well, all this beating ourselves up because of Shanghai and Hong Kong, we're good at things. We're good at things. We should say that. We're good at our universities. Look at where we are now. We're in the best university in the world, or the second best, depending on which table you use. And um, our school leaders, we just had a new OECD study that says they're among the best in the world, um, top of their league. All the Nobel Prizes that the Japanese are screwed up because they can't get, and we've got. Our outstanding creative industries, film and music and media, well overachieving from the size of our country. Um, Look at all the queues we have of people from Singapore and Hong Kong and China coming to look at what we do and look at what the Americans do. There's a sort of regular um, return flight between the United States and Singapore with academics from America who the Singaporeans have invited to come along and discuss what they're doing. So they're obviously doing good things. Um, And what I would say to that is, of course, we're good at all of those things. When you're saying you can learn from others, it doesn't mean you're doing yourself down or denying your own strengths. It means can you, over and above that, learn from what others are doing, perhaps to compensate for some things that we're less strong on. And there's no contradiction in doing that. Those of you who are managers will know that from appraisal discussions with people. You're not saying to somebody, you must stop being good at writing papers because I want you to be better at chairing meetings. You're saying you're really good at writing papers, but maybe you can learn a little bit from somebody who's good. Tristian's very good at chairing meetings, so maybe you can watch what he does and think if you can learn some of the things while continuing with your strengths, the things you are good at. So there's no contradiction in saying that we're good at things as well, and we shouldn't be talking ourselves down. Now, the next thing by Council for the Defence is, but we don't want to be like them. And there is going to be an essence of that in what the man from IBM is going to say next week. And this is by looking at examples of perhaps outcomes or aspects of education practice or experience in these countries that we don't like and we don't want to happen here. One of them that's often mentioned is exam fixation and stress. Huge importance of exams in the, many of the traditions and the stress on young people. Um, this is a picture of exams day in Korea. Um, these children going down the middle are the ones, the candidates, clutching a little bag of sort of sticky rice that's been given by their relatives who, to wish them good fortune. The non-examining children are all waving flags for them. And it's been building up and building up and building up, often with long, long hours of additional tuition. Is that what we want, is the question. Um, And an aspect of that is that there is feedback from some universities, particularly in South Korea, that quite a lot of their students are burned out when they arrive. They've been slogging away so much to get through these stressful exams that they're just not interested in study anymore. And they either sort of go wild and take drugs or whatever, or they just don't perform very well. They're, they're burnt out, or they're, they're not interested. Um, the amount of private tutoring that goes on, um, the, you, in many of the countries I've mentioned, there's a very significant part of an educational experience is with private tutors, either companies or individuals, who, and many... Um, um, young people in the United 
Kingdom go off to these countries to be private tutors. My, the tutor that I had at the London Institute, he started as an undergraduate as a tutor for a Taiwan child who was preparing for his kindergarten entrance exam. And um, so in Singapore, there's been a lot of press um, discussion about this, and particularly about what they call second-level tutors, who are the ones who help people with the homework set by the first-level tutors. Um, and on the whole, again, generalising enormously, the governments don't, and the education departments and the institutes don't like these tutors, but the attempts to try to rein in the, most, the excesses of it have, on the whole, been unsuccessful, really. They haven't really worked. They've been, Korea has done the most to try to rein them in, including sort of keeping children at school so that they don't go to the tutors and abolishing selection for secondary education for that reason at one point. But on the whole, this hasn't really worked. Large class sizes, in contrast with all the countries of the United Kingdom in the 70s and 80s, which were obsessed with reducing class sizes as a, sort of, as a measure of government performance, that's not been the case in these countries, where on the whole the class sizes have been much less of an item of importance. And there are examples, although they're anecdotal and not research findings, of teachers simply saying when a student keeps being unable to, unable to understand something, ask your tutor about that. And, of course, that's not what we want to achieve. Teaching to the textbooks, um, the enormous interest in approved state-endorsed textbooks and to teachers' guides to the extent of memorising them, and teachers and students and parents looking very hard to those. They're often backed up by optional enrichment material, but enormous um, bases on textbooks. And, again, the Council for the Defence would say emphasis on fact-learning and memorisation. Now, I've almost slightly exaggerated this case, but to try and give you a feel if that's the kind of case. We don't want people like that coming out of our systems. Um, and that's summed up a little bit crudely in that way. Uncritical zombies, they won't question authority. They'll write down what the teacher says, they'll memorise it and trot it out. We don't want these types of people in our creative industries. The man from IBM doesn't want them in IBM. Now, I'm saying today that there is some truth behind some of those but some exaggeration and some misunderstanding first of all and we'll come on to some cultural issues in a minute but there are differences in views about the role of memorization and memory in learning there is a tradition in some Chinese related traditions that memorization is a source of deep learning as distinct from surface learning and you get that in some of our own subject educational um, traditions. When I studied music at university, I was encouraged to memorise one or two scores as a means of getting insight into the composer's view. And there are views about memorisation being more than just trotting something out. That said, there is a danger, of course, that it's taken to extremes. When I came into this job, I expected to find um, queues of despairing children with exam hell queuing to jump off bridges or to do unmentionable things with swords in Japan. And I was amazed to find that, in fact, the figures on pupil suicides, of course, any one suicide is a calamity, are actually much lower in these countries than in America or in, in, the, in Australia. So I'm not saying that there isn't enormous issues about stress and about um, <coughs> pressures on young people, particularly in bottlenecks in the system, but there's a bit of myth about all of this. Huge interest by Southeast Asian countries into 21st century skills, all the ones I mentioned endless conferences about them, enormous interest in what's happening in Australia, United States, and in this country, and in Europe, 
and particular issue about, because they're always looking forward, this is where the issues for the future are. But they, as I'm recommending for us, do not necessarily see these as an alternative. Um, as the head of the Singapore Education Board said to me plaintively in the, at the, the coffee break at a conference, she said, aren't we allowed to be good at maths and at critical thinking, she said. <laughs> and um, this is a feeling that they, but there's des- considerable interest there. Enormous developments on the arts and um, a liberal arts side, a new um, joint venture in Singapore with Yale University, a new liberal arts college, which has been much feted by the government. To their distress, um, the, college, the Yale College faculty just last week passed a motion condemning this development because of human rights records in Singapore. So there's two sides of that story. But enormous interest, a big joint venture with the Royal College of Music as well, um, enormous expenditure by government and other things on uh, developments in music and dance and theatre, often with tensions resulting, but regarded as a big part of development. Um, and so all of these have to sort of water down the strength of these, but we don't want to be like them. But there is something, there are essences in some of those. And the other answer by Council of the Defence is, well, in fact, these differences are not about government or about teachers, it's actually about culture. And they usually add, and there's nothing you can do about culture. That's it, you know, it's just about culture. They, we've got our culture, we're good at creativity and all that, and they're good at maths and science, and that's how it is and you can't do anything about it. Well, I think it's worth pausing a little bit, because there are clearly important cultural factors. Any votes for who this gent is? Yes, that's right. I showed it to a friend of mine who said it was George Galloway, which... (laughs) (laughs) It's slight. It's got a slight... Now he says it, I've got a slight slight link. Um, Now, again, I'm slightly going to slightly simplify the different traditions here. Um, but a, if you think of some of the sayings that Confucius and his followers very helpfully left with us, um, to learn and to practice what is learnt is pleasurable, and he didn't mean it's fun all the time. It was something to do with deep satisfaction or deep enjoyment, because there is another tradition of no pain, no gain, which is, um, a, is, is seen quite frequently as well. Now, this one is very important. I want you to remember this one. By not giving up, you can change an iron bar into a needle... And there's something very profound about that one. It'll come back. One excels through diligence. Diligence can compensate for dumbness. <laughs> you don't work hard when you're young, you'll regret it when you're old. So all of these, and there's other parts of the tradition as well. And they're seen not just in China and not just in Chinese com- countries, but in countries that have been influenced by that tradition in the last 2,000 years, including Japan, which has got very different um, emphasis in many ways. But against that, you've got this chap who is, any efforts? Socrates, Socrates, yes, that's not. Um, Ed Miliband, I think it's. um, And unfortunately, he didn't leave all these sayings, apart from in Plato's dialogues. We're not very sure about those. But here's a summary by Pestalozzi, which, again, it begs a lot of issues. But he taught his learners by asking questions, a Socratic or dialectic method, He often insisted that he really knew nothing, but his questioning skills allowed others to learn by self-generated understanding. Well, maybe, you know, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But there is an issue there. And if, again, at the danger of oversimplifying this, there's a broad difference, a balance of emphasis in these traditions. In the Confucian side, about thoughtful acquisition of knowledge through learning. And the Socratic one of learning by asking questions, by inquiry. Um, Listen and learn first, then question and discuss. 
learn by asking and discussing. Now, in the um, bibliography I've given you at the end of this, there's a fascinating article called um, Common Misunderstand- Misconceptions About Students from Southeast Asia Studying in Australia. And one of them, was, and this was done by researchers who interviewed lecturers and also students, um, in some of these classes where one, up to one-third are Asian students in some of the Australian universities. And the misconception, one of them, in inverted commas, misconception was they never take part in seminars. They never ask any questions. They just sit there. And when they interviewed the Asian students, they said, well, we find these seminars very upsetting because these Australian students ask such stupid questions. They waste the time of the teacher. Surely they could sort these points out in the groups they have with their friends, was what they all said. They all assumed that everybody had peer groups. When they sorted out things, they didn't understand. Those who were better at it helped the others. And they shouldn't waste the teacher's time, the class's time, with all of this. Whereas in the tradition that you got with the Australian students, and also in many parts of America and sometimes bits of this country, it was almost a ritual. You ask these questions as a way of moving the discussion on and by showing that you're interested and that you're loyal to the group. So it's a very difference of understanding. Emphasis on efforts, the iron bar and the needle against the emphasis of ability. And indeed, in some forms of Confucianism, the two concepts get sort of merged together. And with ability, if education is finding what you're good at, it follows that you sort of give up on the things you're not good at and you build on what you are good at. But the emphasis on effort is about trying and you get the iron bar into a needle even if it takes a long time. The teacher has this wonderful word, the sapiential authority, doesn't just mean it's the boss, the teacher's the boss, the teacher is wise, and the teacher, and there's words, the lao shu, the, the Chinese word for teacher is about a wise authority in that sense. And then you've got Pestalozzi's version of Socrates as the teacher as a facilitator of self-generated knowledge. There's a different kind of concept there. And then in the Confucius tradition, the loyalty to the country, the family, the group, and the individual last, and very much a basis of individual-based exploration and understanding the Socratic tradition. Now, for many of you, this is so oversimplifying that you'll get irritated, but it's to try and suggest to you that there are cultural issues there that are very deep and they're very important for us to begin to understand. You can't just leap from one and another. Um, If you bring in the Protestant ethic, you come right across the two because some parts like no pain, no gain, and, you know, if it's a nice day in Scotland, you'll pay for it and all this kind of thing. (laughs) Um, They cut across the two. But remember that all of this is going on and there are cultural differences and you need to understand those. However, who says you can never change cultures at all? If you can't read this, says, listen to me, listen to me, we don't all have to be just cheap. Um, <laughs> the point there is that if any of you watch the Andrew Marr programme about uh, modern Britain, you'll see that he was emphasising the huge changes to British culture since 1945. Absolutely huge. doesn't mean that we all become Confucians in 2,000 years, but it means that there are changes. There are ways that you can self-consciously learn from other cultures, um, and we're all cultures are changing all the time. It isn't a, a no-brainer. <coughs> so if Council for the Defence is saying it's all about culture, you can say, yes, but... You don't say, oh, I see, right, we'll stop the discussion. Yes, you understand the culture, but you try to learn some lessons. So my view, which is very much following on what Tim has written, is that there is scope for thoughtful learning from these um, education systems, but not for superficial copying. And others in this, um, one of the other, uh, David Raff's article uses these phrases as well. And Tim's point about the control factors, you need to understand what you're looking at. And to hold a mirror to ourselves, to use 
observation of what's happening elsewhere to say, ah, could we do that? And holding the mirror back to ourselves based on understanding of what you're seeing. So I'm going to conclude by suggesting some, some questions and points and positive points and questions that come from holding the mirror back to ourselves. Now, the last of these um, books that I've mentioned, the one about what can the East learn from the West, has a longish list of what they call the real reasons why the, some of the Eastern countries do so well. I'm going to flick through those and then suggest three or four headlines that we might remember, but I'll just be, quickly go through those. It talks about highly positive attitudes to learning and scholarship and contrasts those with the low esteem of learning and scholarship in some Western cultures. Higher standards and expectations, not just of teachers or of governments, but by families and by individuals. Influential family support, including the willingness by parents to make sacrifices and obligations on children to repay the sacrifice that their parents made. A belief in discipline, the importance of demonstrating effort, virtues of resilience, perseverance, concentration, humility. Now, if you've ever... I don't know if you listened to the Today programme, as I did this morning, about the Prime Minister talking about people standing up, children standing up when adults come into the room. Um, thought it'd be a good idea if we did that. Um, now... In order to understand that, you need to go back into the cultural context and think of some of the control factors. You can't just take standing up and take it out of, out of context and put it into everything else. It's almost a comic example, but it's a good one. Um, strong sense of school, class, group identity, as I mentioned before. Supportive, pro-learning peer culture. There's no suggestion of geeks and nerds being the people who, who learn. Um, and the idea that there's a, a strength there. Respect for the authority and knowledge of parents and teachers. Some of those have downsides as well. And a recognition, says this book, that education can be demanding and not every single stage of everything is, is, is fun. It doesn't mean that education is not enjoyable or that you don't love learning, but love can be tough as well as, well as fun, says she profoundly. Now, I'm suggesting out of all of that, there's three big lessons. And this is us attempting to hold the mirror up to ourselves and to ask ourselves some questions or put some points to us. The positive lessons are these. The first is about the value of education in these, some of these high-achieving countries. I've suggested there are three ways in which we might value education. One is as instrumental to national success or economic prosperity or of some social policy objective. Um, another one is as a means of attainment or fulfilment for individual children um, and a the third is as intrinsically valuable, as good in itself. Now, in the countries that I've been observing and where I live now, there's enormous emphasis on the second and third of those as well as the first. Um, a lot about the individual child, not just as a means of, of, of economic success, but as a means of fulfilment. Um, there was an advert in, in Singapore TV that won an award, and they, were, they have national advertising awards, you know, the most popular adverts, and they vote for them. The one that won for international advert was Heineken Lager, and the one that won for the Singapore national advert was the Ministry of Education. <laughs> and it was called Mrs. Chong. And Mrs. Chong went out of her way to help Edwin, who was from a poor house and got into bad ways. Um, and he, she, she and her family took Edwin out to dinner one time, and he said, thank you for dinner, Mrs. Chong. And she said, you can pay me back when you're successful. And then at the end of the advert, he comes along with his nice car and says, it's time for dinner, Mrs. Chong. And <clears throat> that won the prize along with Heineken Lager as the best advert. But the point was that it, was a means, it wasn't just a means of getting 
Singapore with more money. It was a sense of helping Edwin to fulfil himself. Um, and that um, tradition is very strong. And also the value of education, not in all social classes and all groups. This is not unique to the part of the world I'm talking about. Those of you who work in India will know how strong that tradition is there as well. But it's a thing that we can always learn from. Valuing teachers. I said that the teacher's pay thing taken in isolation was a red herring. But in terms of selection and social status, and also the scope for teachers to develop, some of the research in the United States suggests there's a kind of plateau after the first four to seven years when people just sort of stay where they are for the rest of their career and then they fall exhausted off the cliff at the end. But of continual development, continual professional support, often regrouping itself in different ways um, throughout the career. And the value, the social value that, and the status of teachers on the whole is very high. doesn't mean they're necessarily better qualified. Um, there is a move to having more master teachers, but some of these countries have lower proportion of graduate teachers than we have, but the status and the value given to them is very high. And the other one is about helping each other. And there's a tradition in education of all levels, including teachers as well as students, but particularly with students, of helping each other um, with <coughs> education, and being something that's almost expected, as I mentioned, from the students in the Australian survey. Um, in cafes in Singapore... Um, you always see this notice up. This is the coffee bean, which is one of our cafes. Um, I remember when, I t when Anne was in Singapore a couple of weeks ago, we went to get Starbucks. She said, oh, look at that, no studying. Um, and because it's to stop people just setting their laptop up and taking up the whole place. But if I go into a cafe, which I do frequently, more often than not, there'll be a little group of students, often school students, two or three in little groups in a table, when one of them is pointing things out to the others, and it's usually maths, and it's usually the one who's better at it, helping the others um, to do their, their work or their course or their project or something. And that is regarded as just normal. And there must be a strength there that, that we can learn from. Now, those are strengths. What about the challenges? And these are things that we can ask about ourselves, really. Do we give up too easily? Remember the iron bar and the needle? And if you work long enough, you can make an iron, uh, change an iron bar into a needle. Um, I think most of us, I certainly, was quite shamed by one of the points in Alison Wolfe's report of the fact that for those who fail GCSE maths, almost all give up and don't do it anymore. Um, do we give up too easily on people who find some traditional subjects which are difficult, maths and languages are the obvious ones, too hard? Or can we learn a bit from the iron bar into a needle? I couldn't resist this one, which was on the same picture. <laughs> um, so are we, are, we, are we giving up too much? It's a bit of perseverance that we could do. Should we redress the balance a little bit between breadth and depth? And there isn't time here to go into that in any the depth it requires. But there are some issues coming up, rising heroically above the detail of all the contextually-based studies about understanding a smaller amount of things in greater depth. And the concept of depth in some of the cultures that we're talking about is really a good one. Do we need to be as anti-intellectual as we are? And this is at all levels in our society, not just kids, but also governments and um, a professional networks and companies. Um, the youth and the popular culture, on the whole, it's fine to be working really hard at sport or to be in the winner of the X factor, but not to be working at at education, that's, that's a bit of a geeky thing to do. Um, but there's the anti-intellectual culture. In, 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 this is not a political point. Ministers of many parties, on the whole, are pretty sceptical about education academics. 
Um, they're regarded as a bit sort of woolly jumpered and a bit off, off, off script. Whereas the, on the whole, the Singaporeans will invite them all to come and explain what they're, what they're saying, and they'll look at it very hard. They won't be put off superficially by the fact that they're intellectuals or that they're academics. So there's an issue of maybe we should hold, have an open, a more open mind about academics. Are we encouraging deluded self-perceptions in our students? Now, one of the strengths of our tradition is about um, positive reinforcement. Um, and a, I think it's one of the things that we do very well and our teachers do very well. But I personally was a bit taken aback when I saw that, that graph, which came from a study of um, secondary maths pupils. Um, there did seem to be a contrast between the perceptions of the students and what you got here. So maybe we... And, of course, the Asians tend to do it the other way around. They underestimate their own ability, uh, beat themselves up probably too much. But maybe we need to learn a little bit more about realism and about actually sharing the facts and when things are tough and things are difficult, actually getting a shared understanding of that. So those are some challenges that we can ask ourselves. So, in conclusion, I've started by saying what I mean about our education system, which I mean about schools and the East, and there's lots of other things to talk about as well. The case to answer, which is largely based on this, and includes PISA Envy, but not only PISA Envy, surely we can learn something from the achievements that these surveys and other surveys record. And then the possible answer is rejecting the evidence, explaining it away, saying it's all about culture, therefore you can't do anything. And I've suggested, as Tim has... Um, using intelligent understanding to hold up a mirror to ourselves and to suggest some positive lessons and some challenges. And the positive lessons, which are the important ones, are about the value of education in all social classes and throughout society, the value of teachers and good teachers at all levels, and the expectation and role of helping each other in the adventure of learning. And I think no country is too successful to learn these lessons. That's it. Thank you very much. This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk.